Let's turn first to Second uh, Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. Um, it's a passage we were looking at last night at Friday night. I won't read the entire chapter as I did last night, except to focus in on a couple of things and read in particular the last two verses of Second Timothy chapter three. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I mentioned last night that the term, the word that is used for man in verse 17 is a gender neutral word. In other words, it's not saying male of the species. We would sometimes translate it mankind or human beings, so that it applies either a man or a woman, that the person of God might be perfect, fully equipped unto all good works. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And I would hope without hesitation that we would agree that this is obviously true personally in our life if we are believers in the Lord Jesus. And just prior to this, in verse 15, we were noticing last night that it was from a child that Timothy had known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to lead him to the wisdom that shows salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, the Scripture, the Word of God. In the setting of the book of 2 Timothy, there is an emphasis on the word in each chapter, or at least there is a repetition of the word in each chapter, of the word truth. Because the Spirit of God through Paul will describe a time when people will depart from the truth and they'll not want to hear the truth. And I did make the observation last night that while it is a... Um, an unsettling thing when society becomes that way, at least if we lived in a society where once God's word was taught and at least reverenced in a sense, uh, while that is unsettling, what the more unsettling thing is is when those who go under the banner of Christianity don't want to hear the truth. Uh, those that will not endure sound doctrine. Now the world has never endured sound doctrine. And when the things that are listed in chapter 3 in the first few verses, the 19 traits that are given to us beginning in chapter 3, verse 2, down to verse 5, when those things become characteristic of those that at least name the name of Christ and go under the banner of Christianity. And again, they have a form of godliness. The world never has a form of godliness. So he's talking about those in this day which is a far more insidious, far more dangerous thing, those that um, those that uh, have a form of godliness and yet deny the very power, which I take to be the power of regeneration through the new birth. And so there are multitudes of people and multitudes of those that go under the banner of Christianity. Now again, he's talking about the last days. I don't think any of us would hesitate to say that that's not something we have to wait for. We're already there. It's already around us everywhere. 
And so you have departure. You have departure from the truth. You have an unwillingness to submit to the truth. Again, not just by unsaved people who are in society, but by those who are going under the banner of Christianity, who don't want to hear the truth of God's word. That is a, we shouldn't really be surprised at what we see around us. He told us it was going to happen. The time will come, he says in chapter 4 and verse 3. And so we went over a little bit of that last night in uh, our time with the folks at Friday night. And while this is true and has bearing on us individually, I want to suggest that it also has to do with us collectively. Collectively. Now, I'm going to turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And there are some of you who have known me for a while. Some of you may not have known me quite as long. And I'm saying that because I would probably say that many of the times I've been in this neck of the woods, this geographical area, I have spoken on things pertaining to the church. I have no problem with that in the sense that it's something that really delights me. It's a subject that I hope you'll see why it delights me, because it delights the heart of God. Um, but I don't want you either to think that my guitar only has one string, and that's the only one I pluck all the time, because um, it's not the only note I hammer on. Matter of fact, I would say the majority of time that I've spoken on this subject in this area, in connection with Boulevard in particular, I've been asked to speak on it, and I've only been too, you know, happy to do so. And I was asked to speak on it this time. So if you're wondering, how come every time a guy shows up, he's talking about the church? <laughs> Doesn't he know anything else? Is that all he's got? We've heard this before, you know. Uh, probably have heard it before. Thank you for showing up late. I'm sure it was Michael's fault, not Jessica's. No doubt in my mind. But I'm glad to see you. <laughs> Jessica, I mean, not Michael, but... <laughs> so anyway, um, if you're wondering why is he speaking on that again, because I was asked. But again, I'm only too happy to do so. And when conferring with the powers that be over what exactly it would be, and if I'm, am I correct that you've been going over this some now? This is sort of the, uh, the wind down or the hopefully a finale and not a letdown. But... Um, <laughs> So I, I picked a topic on which I have spoken before called Why I Like the New Testament Assembly. And, and what I'm going to do now is tell you why I don't like that title. <laughs> because that was a title that was assigned to me once. And so... Um, not by Boulevard, though. Well, no, not by Boulevard. No, they wouldn't. But anyway, um, <laughs> it was assigned to me. And when it was assigned to me, I took it. But when I got to where I was, because you don't want to do it in advance and you run into conflict, you know. But when I got ready to speak, I said... <laughs> Here's what was assigned to me, and here's what I'm going to change it to, okay? But in all honesty, what I did change it to is um, something in the effect of not why I like the New Testament assembly, but, um, you know, why I appreciate what God's Word teaches about the New Testament assembly. Now, back in the day, that was a little bit much to get on a cassette. So um, they like shorter titles. But it's not really a matter of, of as much what I like. And that's the thing I was trying to avoid because it's not so much a matter of just choosing what I, what I like. 
What I want to choose is what God likes. And when I find out what pleases the heart of God, then that's what I want to line myself up with. Really, isn't that part of the, the tension of life? It's a tension in our individual walk because we have a will. And God did not make us as robots. And, and, and the, the struggle of the Christian life exemplified in one sense, not that he had the same struggle in that sense, but exemplified by the words of the Lord Jesus and the answer he gave in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. The essence of that is what we as believers struggle with in life, isn't it? Exerting our own will, going our own way, or submitting ourselves unto his will, which is kind of, you know, it's kind of crazy in one sense because we know his will is better. But we've got a will. And like a child sometimes struggles against a parent or a wife struggles against a husband and a husband struggles against what God would have him to do. None of y'all, but I mean some of us, you know, that deal with such things. Um, we have that will. And that's where I, I go back again time and time to what Paul said. What was the motivation of his life? How did he find the source to be able to pursue the will of God, to be able to give himself? And the motivation is found in those words where he said, I am crucified with Christ. The old life is dead. Nevertheless, I live. If you don't think I live, ask my wife. She'll tell you I'm very much alive. And more is than one, you know, but... but the life that I now live, I, I, I live in the flesh. But I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Crucify with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not, yet not I, not I, but Christ. And as I've said before, you can reduce the essence of the Christian life down to those four words. You wake up every day and say, not I, but Christ. And then you seek to live that out in reality. That's the essence of it. And that's the battle we face. Not I, but Christ. So anyway, having said that, that's the real issue. And I want to submit to you that while we generally, and I'm generalizing now, tend to realize that when it comes to our individual walk, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus, somehow that doesn't always transpose itself into the collective key of what we do as a group of believers in the Lord Jesus. And so I say that again to say it's not just a question of what I like. It's coming to discover what God's truth is. And having discovered that, seeking by the grace of God, individually and collectively, to submit myself to that. And as a local assembly, seeking to do the same thing. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, where we turned, Paul begins by saying to the church at Corinth, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. Can you guys, Enrique, can you hear me? You could raise your voice just a 
Well, thank you. Uh, Lisa. <laughs> you answer him faster than you do me, but anyway, that's greetings. You are yet carnal, not you, but I mean, anyway, the scripture Paul is saying, I'm back in Corinthians here. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For your labors together with God, ye are God's husbandry, one of you young men, old men, whatever, who doesn't have the King James as I do, may the Lord have mercy on you. Um, <laughs> can you give me a reading in verse 9? For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. God's field. What about the rest? Building. God's building. Okay, field. Cultivated field is the concept there. And according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man now take heed how he builds thereupon. So let me just back up for a moment and begin to look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in order to do that, I want to just read from chapter 1, for the sake of all who are here. He writes to those in verse 2, the church of God, which is at Corinth, those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So is there any question in our minds, there shouldn't be any question in our mind, he's writing to believers in the Lord Jesus. I say that because if you just happened one day and you'd never read the New Testament, and you picked up a book of the Bible and thought, I think I'll read Corinthians, I think I'll turn to chapter 5 and start my reading there. Or chapter 6. You know, you might begin to wonder, who are these people he's writing to? They couldn't possibly be believers. But then you back up to chapter 1, and you see the clearly established fact that who he's writing to, they were indeed believers. And so in chapter 3, as he's writing to them, I could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. Now, the word carnal... Keep your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn to the book of Jude, chapter 1. That was a joke. <laughs> Jude. Just to let Scripture help us understand Scripture. Verse 19 of Jude. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Someone give me a, Brian, what do you got? These are ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit, which is what NASB has. I don't know what you've got there. But or I have mere, uh, merely natural. Merely natural, devoid of the Spirit. That word sensual is the same word that is translated in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, carnal. The definition is we get helped in Jude 19 by carnal meaning 
devoid of the Spirit or natural. Now, what he's saying in chapter 3 to the Corinthians is not that they were devoid of the Spirit, but that they were carnal in that they were acting like people who were only doing things as you would approach it from the natural mind. In other words, not based on what God's Word says, not based on what pleases God, but naturally. And it tells us this, that a church, not just an individual, but a church can be carnal. If the church's approach to the Lord's things is only based on natural thinking. Now that tells us something else. If it's possible for a church to act like and function like, you know, the natural man devoid of the spirit, then there must be a standard. Because there isn't a standard, we all just do what we want. It's one big free-for-all. And I do whatever I think works best, or I do whatever I think attracts the most people, or I do whatever I think offends the least people, or whatever else the criteria is, if there is no standard. But the fact that he could look at that church and say, you're functioning as those in a natural way. You're making your decisions and you're functioning as a local assembly, a local church, like natural men without the Spirit. And then he says in verse 4, while one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not yet carnal? It's possible for an assembly to gather around and be attracted to one individual or two individuals or prominent people or good preachers. And I don't know about you, but I've met tons of people in the past you ask them, what is the criteria of why you go where you go? I like this preacher. What happens when that guy leaves? Well, I follow him wherever he goes. Or if I don't like the next one, I go somewhere else till I find one I like for whatever reason. Following a human being or a, or a human leader, Paul says, is not spiritual, it's carnal. Now, having said that, some of us definitely, I being one, have certain preachers and teachers that we appreciate. <laughs> Others we endure, but it doesn't form the basis of why I meet in a certain place or why I gather in a certain way. Because to do that is carnal. And then we get more towards the heart of it. And I'm going to jump down now to verse 9, where we read, we are, you are labors together with God. You're God's husbandry, cultivated field. You're God's building. And if you drop down into verse 17, he's going to tell you something else you are. You are God's temple. Now you know in 1 Corinthians that he will use the term temple in two ways. He will use it in chapter 6 to speak of your body. Individually, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But here he's using it collectively of a local church. 
the church at Corinth, which he uses an analogy or a word picture which causes them to think of the imagery that he's, he's using. It conveys something to their mind. If he says this, you are God's building. You are God's cultivated field. You are God's temple. Well, one thing it certainly implies is possession and ownership. You are God's temple. You are God's field. You are God's building. And so it, it gets across to us, doesn't it, whose we are, whose the church is. That sounds funny, whose the church is. Who the church is, but anyway, I mean, it's, it just sounds funny. But you understand that idea of possession. This is God's church, God's field, God's building, God's temple. Well, that should certainly elevate my thinking. And I have to ask myself, what's my concept of the local church? Because this was the church at Corinth he's talking about with all the problems with all their hang-ups, with all their stuff going on, they still were God's possession. And then it starts getting close to the heart of it to me, too, because of the three things that he's going to use, these three pictures that cause us to think through what, what it is that he's conveying to us. You are God's cultivated field. You are God's... Well, you see, a cultivated field is like a garden. Now, I have a little garden. I very boastfully showed to Jamie my spinach that came out of my little garden. <laughs> Some of you from time to time on Facebook may see me, you know, put little stuff out of my garden. I never used to have a garden because I like a garden. It's hard to keep a garden when you travel, you know. So you got to find pretty low-maintenance kind of stuff and hope it grows and hope it gets rain and hope it doesn't freeze and all that. But I'll tell you what I do almost every day in my little garden. Almost every day when I get up and I get a cup of coffee, I go outside and I look at my little garden. And there's a certain delight that comes to me. It's a small garden, you know. It's not going to produce enough to feed the neighborhood. But that's not the point. You might grow flowers. Why do you grow flowers if you can't eat them? <laughs> but there's a certain aesthetic delight, isn't there? In sitting by a, a, a window or even sitting in a garden and looking at the beauty of those flowers that are growing. When you think that one of the views that the Lord gives us of his church is this cultivated field. I can't say with authority that it draws from Old Testament imagery, but it certainly was true with Israel that there are at least three times I can think of where they were called a vine. And in the imagery of Isaiah and of the Psalms, 
we have repeated that God took a vine out of Egypt and he planted it and he cultivated it and he groomed it and he protected it and he built a fence around it and he built a tower over it and he kept the, animal, the wild animals from it and he looked for fruit, the vine. And so I'm not saying now that Paul is, you know, referencing that. All I'm saying is that that same imagery, when you think that the church is God's garden, in a world that does not love his son, in a world that does not honor his son, in a world that does not subject itself to his truth, to his word, to his gospel. He looks down, and here's this little garden, a place where he can draw pleasure, because it's a place where his son is honored, where those people love the Lord Jesus. And in spite of all their failures and everything else, why are they there? Why are they doing what they do? Why are they seeking to subject themselves to the truth of God? Because it brings pleasure to his heart. And to me, that's, a, that's just a, it's a powerful motivation. And then when I think, the church, as he sees it, you are God's building. Laborers together with God. You are God's building. I don't know how you view what it is you do if you're a believer in Christ and what you do in relation to the church. But some of this really will begin to elevate your thinking if you get hold of the concept that what you're laboring in has to do with building a building that is to God's glory. You know, we just had our men's study at camp, and ladies, um, where's Jamel? I just throw this out there for what it's worth. I mean, this is all fresh, hot off the press. But, but pray about it because there's been some discussion of having a bucket-type study down this way. We'll call it something way better than that. But um, anyway, you know, singles, couples, to come together for a few days or whatever to have some intensive study in the Scripture, pray about it and see what the Lord does. But I think it's an idea that has some merit. But anyway, we were just studying the tabernacle. And one of the things that we were paying attention to was the fact that when these Israelites came out of Egypt and the Lord issued an appeal, his appeal was this, I want you to make me a sanctuary, a place, a sanctuary. That's the language used in Exodus 25. I believe it's verse 8. Make me a sanctuary. Now, what's a sanctuary? A sanctuary is kind of a place where, um, you know, you can go we sometimes use it that way. You can take sanctuary. You get away from this out there. You know, it's your place, protected place, special place. So the Lord said, I want you to make me a sanctuary. And imagine this. As a believer now, it ain't going to happen, but imagine if it did in this way. If God were to come down from heaven, if the Lord Jesus were standing before you and were to say, I'd like for you to build me a place to live. I mean, who wouldn't line up? There's the Lord Jesus who died for you and saying to you, I want you to build me a place. Is there anybody who wouldn't say, Lord, where do I start? 
And when we involve ourselves in the church, in the local church, we are putting our hand to that, which is the Lord's building. And that story in the Exodus, the Lord said, you be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was given you. Why? Because it was God's sanctuary. And he wanted incorporated into that tabernacle the features that pleased him. Was, he didn't leave it up to them to just say, oh, hey, go out and build whatever you want. And I'm saying that because he hasn't done that with the church either. Now, if I go back to our title, which you may think I've wandered far astray from that, and I can borrow from a personal illustration, when I first got saved, and I was ignorant as I could be, not raised in a Christian family or any of that kind of thing, I didn't know the Word of God, I didn't know much about anything that was any good, but I got saved. I knew I was saved. And uh, in my dim mind, the light began to come on a little bit. I knew this. I knew that God had a way of salvation, that he wouldn't just leave that up to man. It was too important. And there was a way that you could be saved and know you were saved, your sins forgiven. Boom, got that. And then it began to occur to me, if that's true, would God just leave the church up to man to decide what to do? That didn't seem to make sense to me because everything man put his hand to, he messed up. And so I began to think, the Lord must have some, you know, plan because I was confused. I mean, I used to sit in that little uh, room I was in and uh, I'd get the newspaper on Saturday and it would list all these different denominations and churches. And I would think to myself and go over the list. When I get out of this little room I'm in, whenever that is, um, I'm going to have to pick one of these. I like this one. I've heard a guy from that one. He's a pretty good preacher. He goes to this one. I never, you know, it just didn't seem to fit until finally I met a couple of men and I was beginning to see a few things and I began to see from his word. There's another way of approaching it. And the way of approaching it is not how man thinks carnally, what he thinks ought to be there carnally, but what has the Lord said? Has he given a pattern that can be followed? Now, that's not rocket science, but I'm telling you, that's the way it came to me. And I want to give you this in 1 Corinthians. Most of you already know it, but it's good to go over anyway. Because one of the things you're going to hear about 1 Corinthians is that this book of 1 Corinthians, that much that's in there it was only cultural stuff. And it only applied to those that were living in Corinth. And uh, while it's true that certain cultural conditions can be a springboard for teaching to occur, I want to show you why that argument, that premise, is not correct. And so back where we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 2, he writes to all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So this letter is written to all of them. And then notice, if you would, turn forward to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 17. 
He says, For this cause I've sent unto you Timotheus, or Timothy, who is my beloved son, faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now that's important, isn't it? That Paul says that what I'm teaching here to you Corinthians, I teach in every church. It's the same thing. I don't say, oh, this is the church at Corinth, and I'm going to tell them this. And this is the church at Ephesus, and they don't have to do that. I teach the same thing in every church. Chapter 7, <coughs> verse 17. As God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk, and so ordain I in all the churches. In all the churches. And then in chapter 11, Now let's drop down to verse 16. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. He's not saying there, I just told you stuff in 15 verses that you can absolutely disregard. If you're going to argue about it, it doesn't, make it, it doesn't matter. He's saying that we don't have any such custom of contending over these things because it's what we teach in all the churches. And you Corinthians are no different. And then chapter 14, in verse 33, which, not to hammer on one thing, but to notice that verse 33 comes right before verse 40, 34. And verse 34 comes right after verse 33. And in verse 33, he says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And so the things that he taught here are the things that he taught in every church. Now that's important too because as you're probably already aware, when it comes to truth concerning the church and what the church is supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do, I don't know of any book that has as much about that subject as the book of 1 Corinthians. And so in that book, he's telling us both what we ought to do, what we ought not to do, and he taught that in all the churches. Now, if you just read that and were not influenced by anything else, would you not come to the conclusion that there should be universal agreement about our practice and what we do in every church. And then while there may be some variation of certain things, certainly when it comes to our overall practice and what was taught and so on, you ought to be able to recognize it from one place to the other, which leads to another question. We obviously know as we look around in the world around us, that's not the way it is. Who moved? Who moved? In other words, if you set the standard here, then if we're all following the same thing, there would be that universality to it, wouldn't there? It's when you move away from that standard. And so the key then, now that, that, that's to accept a major premise. 
I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the major premise is that there is a pattern that is to be followed and that it is something that, and this goes back to why, if you want to get under the why I like, because God's method and God's instructions for the church transcend culture. It's not to say that there are not culturally things. Listen, I think we don't admit it as much as maybe we should, at least I'm speaking to me personally. But, you know, when I was in Africa, in Botswana, you know they didn't have a black book and a red book? <laughs> Matter of fact, most of it, I have no idea what they were singing because I didn't speak Setswana. They didn't sing from the black book. Could you remember the Lord and not have a black book? It was a cultural thing. When I was in um, South America, in Guyana, the singing was much livelier at most of the meetings where I spoke than what you would be accustomed to. Those are cultural variations. But we came together on the first day of the week in Botswana, and we remembered the Lord Jesus in the breaking of bread. And we came together on the first day of the week in Guyana. And we remember the Lord Jesus in the breaking of bread. See, that was the non-negotiable. Some of the other stuff was just, I consider it peripheral. Now, those are poor illustrations. But I'm only saying these truths of God transcend culture. They must work in any culture to be God's truth. And the principles of the New Testament do. And so when we think of God's building, the instruction that he's given in the New Testament, I'll confess to you, it takes a little work to dig. It's a whole lot easier just to come up with stuff. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's a whole lot easier sometimes. Listen, I want to be honest. It's, it's a whole lot easier sometimes to get stuff done if you have a paid professional staff to do it. It's a whole lot easier, a whole lot less complicated, a whole lot less argument, a whole lot less praying. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's God's way. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to produce the type of growth in individuals who have to learn to wait on God, who have to learn to get along with one another, who have to learn to walk with one another, who have to learn to work with one another, because of the higher goal that this is God's building that we're talking about. Not the physical structure, but this church which he purchased with his own blood. And when I involve myself with that, when I put my hand to anything that has to do with that, well, it's a responsibility, but what a privilege. You know, one of the things we notice, I'm just referring what's fresh in mind to the tabernacle, it would have been easy for the Lord to say, you're living in tents, I'm going to live in a tent. Poof, there's my tent. I don't want you touching it. Don't touch my stuff because you'll mess it up. He didn't do that. They gathered the materials. They offered the materials. They did the workmanship. He gave them the skill. He gave them the ability. And as, as uh, 
couple of our young men at the study noted, God gave them all that stuff anyway. And then they turned around and used it to produce something that would house the glory of God. What a motivation to them to think this is going to be God's house. You see, if we could see the church that way, how it would elevate our thinking. This is God's house, the place where he has promised where his glory, according to Revelation, is connected as it was with those local churches. Every one of them. Have you ever thought about that in, in the book of Revelation? I mean, I know we hammer Laodicea. But there were seven lampstands. And if my mind conjures up that imagery correctly, I envision Christ right in the middle, and I envision those lampstands circling him like a, a, a wheel. And I envision each one of those lampstands being in the same proximity to the Christ who was in the midst, one not closer than the other, every one of them shining their light, reflecting the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, even Laodicea, which is an amazing thing to think. Now, they had issues, without a doubt, but um, they could be dealt with. Matter of fact, if you read that passage in Revelation chapter 3, you'll find, to me, that one of the greatest promises of all is given to the church at Laodicea. To those that overcome, I'll grant to sit with me as I am granted to sit in my Father's throne to the Laodiceans. Maybe because they had so much to deal with, so much to overcome. But anyway, his glory connected God's with the local church. And so those Israelites, yes, God had supplied for them to have the materials. Yes, he gave them the pattern of how to build it. But they knew that when they did, and I saw one of the beauties that's found in the book of Exodus when they gave the materials that were offered is how many times the women were mentioned. It wasn't just the men who gave. The women gave, and the women spun the goat's hair, and the women did the, a lot of the labor and provided the stuff to house God's glory. And what a beautiful thought. To think that the Lord could save somebody like me and allow me somehow in my service for him to seek to build something that is connected with the Lord's glory. And when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Um, verse 10 let every man let every individual take heed how he builds thereupon Brian verse 10 last phrase let each, be, let each man be careful how he builds upon it be careful now the it is the foundation that is laid in verse 11. Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation's laid, and then there's a warning. You be careful what you build on that foundation. Now, if it says, be careful, to me that implies there must be a pattern to follow. If not, just build whatever you want. It doesn't matter how you do it, as long as your intentions are good. 
That's where you get the blueprint idea. That's where you get the blueprint idea. As a matter of fact, um, I, I may be mistaken in this. It seems to me that Darby renders verse 10. I don't have my phone open. You, yeah. See if he renders verse 10 where it says, wise master builder, architect. As a wise architect. Darby would render that as a wise architect. And an architect that's wise is going to have a set of blueprints. Right? Right. Go. Is there, no, no, I agree. But is there other verses that you get that the idea of blueprint? Which one do you have in mind? No, no, I'm asking you. I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, are you, is, it, is it just that verse that we, you know, we get the blueprint concept from? Well, the specific language of it, but the concept flows right out of this passage, and it does because of this. The grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder or an architect, I've laid the foundation. Okay, the blueprint, particularly in that aspect, laying the foundation which is the person and work of Christ that the apostles laid down. Now you don't go back and lay the foundation, now you build upon it. How is it to look then? That will be determined by the plan, the pattern that's given you in the scripture. That's why he can say, be careful now how you build upon it. Because what you build upon that, gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, one day it's going to be tested as to what sort it is, what is what sort it is. And if it, and again, now this is an obvious thing, but sometimes I know in my own thinking, I say this not for you, but for me. The, what's the most obvious thing about what the materials listed in verse 12? Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. That jumps out at you about those two categories of things. That's right. What else? Gold. Nice to look at. What else? Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble. Straw. What was that? Who said that? Michael? Was that Michael? He couldn't have said that. No. Value. Value? Is that? The, valuable, yeah. Value. That's, that's in part two. And even back to the value thing, what that tells me is there's a divine estimate. In other words, if you build this way, that's gold, that's silver, that's precious stone. If you build this way, that's wood, hay, stubble. Who decides that? So if that's true, there's got to be a standard. God could not, he, he's not a God who just arbitrarily would say, ha, 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 you got it all wrong. And I never showed you how to do it anyway. I was just hoping somehow you'd get it right, stumble upon it. That's not the way God is. But having revealed himself in the truth of his scripture, back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given for these reasons, profitable in all these things, he's given us the pattern. And having given us the pattern, 
like they did with the tabernacle in the Old Testament, see that you make everything according to the pattern, the blueprint that was showed you in the mount. There, yeah. Amen. Um, if you do it that way, it's money. It's gold, silver, precious stone. If you do it the other way, it's wood, hay, and straw. Right? Now, that tells me one other thing. Not only is there a divine estimate that values these things, so that tells me something right there. It tells me two things. My mind just starts exploding, you know, but it's probably did that a long time ago. But um, <laughs> it tells me, too, that what's going to determine how I do things in connection with the church? What's going to determine in the church how I function, what the features are, and all of that? Not what the world says, and not what makes people happy, and not what people like. But what it is the Lord has placed value upon. What it is that he has said is important. And I want to hold to that. And I want to keep that. If I'm the only one doing it. And if I got to meet with five people who are doing that. As opposed to 500 who aren't. Give me the five people. Now that's a, that's a decision that some folks make. Why? Because the value that he places upon it. And I want my heart to beat with his heartbeat. I want to be in sync with his heart in that sense. Now, God help us because history is replete with the actual, you know, events of people who have attached a value to things that God himself never did. And so we've got to be careful there. But on the other hand, there are things that, according to this book, you see? And then the other thing that that brings to my mind is this. That gold, silver, and precious stones, unlike wood, hay, straw, they, as a rule, require a tremendous amount of labor to acquire. Now, you can find a little gold scratching around on the surface, but if you really want to get down into the vein of it, you got to dig. Silver has to be mined. Precious stones coming from the heart of the earth. Stuff doesn't come up easy. But man, you know, isn't it worth the effort to come up with a handful of diamonds as opposed to a truckload of, of hay? Go down the corner and pile your truck with hay all you want. Give me the handful of diamonds even though they'll take more work and labor. That's another concept anyway that, that kind of flows out of that to me. And um, again the warning, the last one in chapter 3, verse 17. The temple of God. And here's where it comes in. If any man defile the temple of God, Brian, 3.17, destroys the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now, I want to take this in a broad sense, in this way. Well, let's think biblically for a minute. How did they destroy the temple, the Israelites, in the Old Testament? Not just by going in there with a hammer. How did they destroy it? Moral pollution. What? Moral pollution. What else? Putting things in there that God... Taking things out of it, 
selling things off, giving them up to the enemy, whatever it was, you see. Corruption, right? That destroyed the temple of God because that temple, like the tabernacle, was built in such a way to incorporate divine truth in its very architecture, in its very structure. And when they went tweaking it and messing around with it, in that sense, it didn't mean they took a match and lit it and burned it down, although that ultimately would happen. One man renders this, church wreckers, God will wreck. But wreck not in the sense of taking an axe to a physical building. But if you go back to that passage in Timothy that talks about the church of the living God being the pillar and the support of the truth, and the church being intended and designed by God in the very way that we gather together as believers and what we do and don't do, communicating by the very way that we gather the truth of God, when you go tweaking it, you wreck the picture. You wreck the temple. I'll show you how we do it. It follows, as you know already, verse 18 will follow verse 17. And verse 19 will follow verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. Listen to this. If we could get hold of these two verses, we, generally speaking, if the Christian world could get hold of these two verses, and what the implications are, it would be a transformation. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seem to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Human wisdom, worldly intentions, God's, I mean, man's plans and designs and schemes, strategies and methods and techniques, they don't cut it. It's foolishness with God. Why would mankind think he's wiser than God? It's obvious in salvation, isn't it? And you know, there's three chapters here that talk about wisdom. Chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians it is not man's wisdom that divines salvation. The foolishness of preaching. Chapter 2, it's not man's wisdom that communicates the truth of Christ and his gospel. Brethren, when I came unto you, Paul says, I came not with enticing words of man's wisdom. And chapter 3, it's not man's wisdom that is to be used in the building of the church. Now, you can go and take all the courses you want and all the things you, you like, but when it comes down to it, God has given us the blueprint and the plan and the pattern. It takes a little digging, but it's there. I'm done. Yes? You opened up. I said that the power, yeah, the, the, um, those that deny the power thereof. Right. Yeah. I said having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Well, what is the power that produces godliness? Ultimately, it's regeneration. Mm -hmm. That's the basic core of it. And I'm simply saying that to me as I read this list of things, of those that are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, blasphemers and all of that, but they have a form of godliness, which tells me he's not now talking about society. He's talking about those that are going under the banner of Christianity. 
They had a form of godliness, but they denied the very power of it, which is, to me, that's my understanding of the text. It doesn't say that uh, explicitly. But what is the power that would produce true godliness? Enrique, what would you say? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> is, this, is there a question? Can I? Yeah, you may. You know, is it legitimate to say that it is not good for any assembly to study what we're studying here on the assumption that we've got it all right and we're following the pattern? That's number one. And number two, is it right to, as an assembly, ask ourselves, what is it that we're doing here at Boulevard Bible Chapel that is, according to man's wisdom, and outside of God's wisdom? And that those are legitimate, that's a legitimate exercise, a very necessary exercise, and it's dangerous to approach this thinking, we've got the pattern, we're following the pattern, we're okay. I do think there is, it is healthy to evaluate, to always be open to the scripture. I remember when I first got saved and went to the little assembly that I was first involved in, for which I'm very grateful for all I learned there, but there were things that frustrated me. I didn't ask things out of um, a rebellious spirit, but I remember asking one man, how come we have 20 minutes of singing? Why don't we have 50 minutes of preaching and 10 minutes of singing? To which I was told, the brethren always have 20 minutes of singing. <laughs> oh, okay. But don't we do all things, you know? And so those things can be frustrating. That's a very simple illustration, but yes, we need to evaluate. Constantly. Constantly before the scripture, absolutely. Yes, Tim. I would just say that a lot of times we're doing things that we think are biblical, right? You know, you don't have something definitive from the Word of God. You got to be careful where the scripture doesn't speak, and you got to be careful because sometimes there may be things that are traditions that have a value to them. And so we move before the Lord carefully, and yet at the same time, the discernment to know the difference, to not elevate those things that are simply preference into scriptural principles, and not to do the reverse is what we see often, taking those things that are scriptural principles and you know, lowering them to be simply preferences. So you folks only do this because that's a preference. Well, no, that may be a scriptural principle. And so to come back to those things, to evaluate, and generationally, the beauty of new people getting saved and new generation coming up, they got to revisit these things. And then, hopefully, with the generation that's beyond them of being willing to say, well, you know, maybe we weren't always doing that in the way the Scripture presents. Maybe that was a tradition we'd fallen into. We like it. It had a value. But do we go to the wall for that? You're saying the breaking of bread wasn't always that nice. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way I... Well,
Well, it was when Paul. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're not listening. Then. No, I'm just. <laughs> sits in the water, uh, you know, it begins to build barnacles. And over time, somebody who doesn't know better might look at the, those barnacles and say, oh, that's the hull of the ship. Yeah. So when we revisit these, it allows us to clean it and to refresh it so that we can have uh, a more confident and pure approach to assembling together. And, so, and I think, for instance, you know, you mentioned... Uh, your own personal um, under, uh, coming to the Lord, when even after having been saved for a while and been in the institution, and I think it was you who came to Boulevard the first time when I heard New Testament church principles, which is non-existent in most institutions, right? So when you visit these things, it opens up and allows the uh, Spirit of God to work more powerfully in the assembly. Yeah, it's good to visit. Larry, um, <clears throat> well, two things. One is, sounds like you've, you've mentioned the word glory a lot, the yep. glory of God a lot. Yeah. Um, is it safe to say that that's, that that's the overarching or underlying importance that this is all for his glory? I think it is. Even when you come to a verse that I kind of struggle with interpretively, at the end of that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, he's going to kind of bring things to a summary. And, uh, and, well, this isn't the one that I struggle with, but in verse 21, Therefore, therefore, let no man glory in men. And then he goes on with the parts that I struggle a bit more in my own mind to, to get across. But, yeah, because... Um, The glory of God is a concept that requires some definition because that is a word, yes, well, I can in a sense. It is one of those terms that encompasses a variety of things. Sometimes the term glory means to boast, to, you know, to boast or put your confidence in, Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the, the, the rich man glory or boast in his riches or the mighty man his might and so on and so on. So sometimes it's what you put your confidence in or what you brag about, what you boast in, what you trust in. Sometimes glory, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I take the glory of God there to be not some bright shining manifestation of God's presence, but the sum total of God's attributes, which equates to God's perfection. So that if you put everything together of who God is, what makes God God, his attributes, characteristics, it equals the glory of God, which is his perfection, which we've all come short of. Sometimes the glory of God has to do with the persona of those attributes being manifested. So, you know, his presence is seen as his glory. Um, in the, yeah, in the tabernacle, other places. And other times, the word glory has to do with his honor. To honor him. To give God the glory is to give him the honor that he is due. And so, but when I mention the glory too, 
I think part of that reference was thinking back to the tabernacle. When they built a house for God, it was a place where his glory came down and resided. When you go to Revelation chapter 1 through 3, Christ's glory is not collected, connected with the political system out there. It's not connected with Washington, D.C. It's connected with the church. That's where his glory is found in that sense. That's where his presence is manifest, if you will. And that's where he is to be honored. I don't know if that helps or muddies the water, but that's the kind of thing I was thinking about. So that which has to do with honoring him, to give him the glory, the honor. Yes. I think it's relevant that the book of First Corinthians starts from the foundation of Jeremiah 9. It's yep. Yep. First Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah. I think that's an important thing. Yeah. And really what it's dealing there with is uh, back in Jeremiah 9 that there was no difference between people who were uncircumcised and those that were circumcised in the way that they lived, or whatever that's worth. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 has everything to do with what is and what is the result of true spiritual circumcision. What does that mean, and what is the effect that that's to have in the believer's life? And basically, circumcision is the cutting off of the flesh because of an absolute and complete dependence on the living God. That's right, yeah. So, anyway, that, you know, that, that's helpful to correct. No, but that brings in, and, and it's just, <clears throat> let the assembly, let no one glory in men, right? Whether it's in the gospel, whatever. And so, with that concept of circumcision, the cutting off of the flesh, the dependence of what the flesh can produce, going back to Abraham and so on, and then beginning to think that a local church um, is a place where our dependence is to be expressed as upon him, not in what human ingenuity or man's whatever, you see, and there's so many places where systems are put into play that it robs you of that dependence of waiting upon. And this goes back, I mean, if I say Old Testament, give me a man of the flesh. Who would you think? Samson. Give me another one. Saul. Well, was it that Saul said, he's waiting, right? Samuel, no, no, wait till the prophet to come. No, he couldn't wait. And the flesh wants to... Waiting independence on God is much harder. And that's partly what the assembly is about. It's a whole other concept. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. Would you, would you say that that would affect those who attend the local meeting, their personal walk and their relationship with the Lord, the way that things are being done there? Say it certainly, well, yes and no. It can. On the other hand, there are those that overcome. You know, and in their heart, they're doing it for the honor of the Lord and so on, even if things are out of whack. Just like you had in Israel, things weren't always what they were supposed to be, but the individual was still responsible in their hearts to hold that truth, to do what God called them to do as best as they were able. Now, one other thing back to what Michael said. When it comes to honor, this is just me, Michael, now thinking about honor. It's God's house. So when I come into God's house, the local church, not the physical building, that's not the critical thing. 
If I come to your house, which I, I have been to before, and you happen to say, you know, when you come to our house, we've just had this beautiful tile installed. Would you mind taking your shoes off when you come in the door? And I've just been out in the muddy yard like out here, and I'm like, forget that guy, you know, and I just come tromping across your beautiful new tile. I don't show respect and honor to the owner of the house. And in my mind, showing respect and honor to the church, God's house, if I just do whatever I want to do without considering the things the owner has put in place, I don't show him honor. So that's in my own little thinking. Yes, Enrique. Well, this is a phenomenal, fabulous subject, you know. Oh. That it, it, it goes and goes and goes, and, and, and there's so much here. But you know, there's even danger in a meeting like this. There's danger in liberty, tremendous danger in liberty. So, 1 Corinthians 11 19, if you could read that verse just for a moment. We get very scared. I, I do. I mean, sometimes I, I'm like, oh my goodness, what's that brother going to do? What's that brother going to say? For there must also be heresies or sects or divisions among you that they may, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. But imagine, God's design of his local assembly is such that it actually allows for these kinds of divisions to surface. <laughs> These kinds of even contentions and carnal men, uh, you know, not to say women, that act carnally. <laughs> and, and all of it. But what's our salvation from? Our salvation from it is absolute dependence on the Lord. Only He can cure the thing, fix the thing, deal with the thing, and make the thing work for His honor and glory. But our natural tendency, under the fear of it, and I know because of the weakness we feel, but that weakness makes us strong in our dependence. Our natural tendency is to impose limitations, so to speak. Sometimes rules that yep. would prevent the, and, and never expose us to it, you see, because of our natural inability to actually live by faith in the living God. Back to Abraham going down to Egypt. And when he took that departure, and here's Sarah, and, and, and she's beautiful. And, and, and oh, what are they? Well, Listen, tell him you're my sister. Tell him you're my sister. Because if she hadn't been beautiful, he'd say, you be sure to tell him you're my wife. You know? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Learning to live by faith in the living God. No, I hear you loud and clear. God will never allow a little like to take Sarah. Yeah. The promised seed. Yeah. To destroy Abraham. Because of the promise. He, yeah. An ability to yep. rest in that. I, I want to throw something else out if that's okay. No, it's not. But, but go ahead anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it has to do with, again, our, our thinking. That even when we speak about the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And how, you know, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And thank God we do. Amen. And there are, you know, there are things that happen in the way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper that are tremendous. Yeah. So let's, you know, please don't hear me saying anything but that. Just the fact that there is no man for sighting. Just the fact that there's no prearranged order. And just the fact that the saints are truly coming in that sense of depending on the spirit of the living God to lead and the brothers submit to his leading for that Lord's Supper meeting to function. So just that is phenomenal. Uh, and here's a jab. Uh, 
sadly, we, 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 we quickly, when that meeting ends, try and get away from that and uh, yep, go into yep. man-made. Yep. Okay. Yeah, but I hear you. I, I was going to say that just even in our concept of the Lord's Supper, technically in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper is to have the loaf and the cup present. To then give thanks for the loaf and eat it. Pass it around. Immediately following, to give thanks for the cup, to take it and drink it. That technically is the memorial. That technically is what the Lord's Supper is, what the Lord said, this do in remembrance of me. That is the New Testament Lord's Supper. I say that to then say, how much of our concepts of what the Lord's Supper meeting is, now, even in our understanding, carries with it much more than just that simplicity. Having said that, I remember before I was saying that I was exposed to the gospel and to the assembly, and it was at the old 7th Street meeting in Miami. And I had a tremendous experience as an unsaved person, having been brought up in Roman Catholicism and so on. When I first walked into that meeting, and there was no elaborate anything on the windows or the building, and, and it was just those men there, uh, and the women veiled, and the way they met, the Spirit of God said to me, you found it. This is, there was some, a glory, a reality of God in it. It impacted my heart. I never forgot it. To the point that when I got converted almost ten years later, I immediately sought out a New Testament assembly. I wanted nothing else but saints gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus. Having said that, it was not uncommon back then for a brother, let's say at 9.30, at 9.35, to give thanks for the loaf, take it, eat it, immediately to give thanks for the cup, to take it and drink it. And now it was 940, and we'd already done, quote unquote, the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. What would happen if someone, hopefully that by the Spirit, but I felt led of the Spirit to do it, but I've been afraid to do it because of the effect it can have yep. in assembly. Yep. And if, 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 if I broke bread at Boulevard tomorrow morning, and at 931, I rose and gave thanks for that loaf, <laughs> and passed it. And then I got up and gave thanks for the cup, and we passed it. What would you think? And how would that affect the next 50 minutes that you still got allotted to that hour meeting? It, it's just for thinking. Yeah. I throw that out. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I, I've considered this. There is a technical sense in which, as you say, we come together, we break the bread, we take the cup, we have, in that sense, had the Lord's Supper. This is just me thinking now, okay? That, in one sense, that Lord's Supper, which is only a phrase only used once in all the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the only time it's found, and I think there to emphasize it was the Lord's Supper to those Corinthians, um, and falling back onto more of what it is described as in the words of the Lord himself, this do in remembrance of me. That we could still take the bread and take the cup and have remembered him. And yet, there's a sense to me in which, just functionally speaking now, not to make a steadfast rule, but to say we have set aside a period of time for the remembrance of him. 
And now as the climax of that, we take the loaf and take the cup. Not as a mandate, but a value in that, for that time allotted. Whether we do it before or other, though, you can't make an argument to say it has to be. Yeah. No, and yeah. certainly when the church came together, they, did. they came together yep. with hymns, with songs, yep. with a word, yep. with a question, with prophecy, yep. and with, uh, when I say a question, it's remarkable because they didn't have the Bible the way we do. Hmm. So they had questions, and they came, and they came with the expectancy that the Lord was present, and as the question was asked and directed to the Lord, not to a man, the Spirit of the Living God will bring them revelation and answer to that prayer. And then the order told them of how to do it. Two or three, order. If one is speaking, then another one gets a revelation. Let the first one be silent. Let the second one have his way. What you talk about? You know, if I was to in a meeting today say, you know, interrupt not, and I want to be careful with the word interrupt because you know. No, I know. Yeah. But you follow what I'm saying. I do. What could happen? But again, I would think, this is me thinking, as you said, the reason you wouldn't do that, I would think it's a subject needs to be taught, because other than that, you're... Absolutely. Yeah. Very careful. Jamel, are the ladies ready for us? Yeah. Are we, what I meant to say with what you said is that yeah. they 